This is Season 1, Episode 12 of Mastering the RPG, a tabletop RPG podcast all about upping your game. Doesn't matter if you're a game master or player, you'll find advice, ideas, and of course, some strong opinions. Our episode tonight is Designing Compelling Monsters, or I don't remember that from the Monster Manual. Welcome to Mastering the RPG, a tabletop RPG podcast, just like I said, where you have advice, ideas, cool stuff found, and a lot of strong opinions. I'm Carl with my co-hosts, James and Eric, and you'll find information about the show at masteringtherpg.com. If you have questions, uh, want Eric to adjudicate a problem, or just want to give us some feedback, go ahead and send us an email at gamemaster at masteringtherpg.com. All of that is one word, um, and so... We're happy to be here again. Hey, gentlemen, nice to see you. Nice to hear you. How are you doing, Eric? How are you doing, James? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Hello, gentlemen. It's going very well indeed. Well, indeed. Keen to get into this week. I, I love this topic. <laughs> yeah, you, you're rubbing your hands like an evil mastermind, like your minions, your hundreds of minions before you do as you command. So, yeah. Exactly right. Let's create some masterminds and some minions to serve some them. Abominations. It's going to be good. <laughs> that's awesome awesome to hear um so anything exciting going on with you i got a new campaign coming up that i'm just getting ready to start with eric and uh trying to figure out the first couple of adventures and how it's all gonna tie together it's uh sci-fi pretty excited about that how about uh how about anyone else doing Beautiful. anything exciting i'm on the uh, i'm on the opposite side of that spectrum i'm winding up my yearly campaigns. I run uh, campaigns for children's group after school at the moment. And so we are into uh, session 35 of 40 this week. So winding up campaigns to their conclusions, which is always fun and always a bit, uh, always a bit fraught to make sure you give <laughs> enough space and enough time. We should do something about ending campaigns soon because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big thing. And so I'm doing frenetic writing where you're trying to jam everything in as much as you can tie up all those loose ends with five sessions to go so all that's right. taking all of my time yeah, i'm right. gearing up to be in a new game uh with a new character and, and getting their voice uh making connections with other players so yeah that's what i'm doing it's a sci-fi game uh <laughs> and i just you know yeah it sounds like this the match made in heaven sounds <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um well awesome so this week we wanted to talk about um designing compelling monsters hello yeah welcome i uh, put some notes together for this one bizarrely which is not my usual modus operandi because i'm that passionate about so talking this week about creating your own monsters, so particularly compelling monsters, monsters that might make a real difference. Um, and so I thought we'd talk a little bit this week about uh, why we would do this. Why, why on earth would you need to create monsters? There are literally hundreds and thousands of monsters and various monster manuals and guides for almost every system. I can't think of a system that doesn't have a monster manual of some sort that, that comes alongside with it. How do we do it? How would we put monsters together? Um, what's some first principles about creating some compelling beasties? 
some quick ways to shake up existing monsters, which we'll talk a little bit about, about how do you reskin existing things, recolor things, so that you don't have to do all the work of creating something from scratch. I thought we'd talk a little bit this week about boss battles, how to create a good boss fight, um, because they're often the big compelling monster. And I don't know about you guys, whenever I'm creating a campaign, I actually spend a lot of time looking at the end boss or the mini bosses that go along the way to make sure that those encounters are really special. And then finally, a little bit of player advice. How do you, uh, how do you make these monsters and how, did, how does your player character reactions uh, fuel and, and benefit a, a, a new monster or a new campaign? So um, I thought we would set up there. And, um, and I guess the opening thing is, why on earth would you do this? At the, at the, at the moment, the, the role-playing game's going for as long as they have. There are inordinate amounts of monsters, of monster stat blocks, of uh, every single different myth and legend that has been statted and, and created. All you have to do is Google a, uh, uh, a bugbear stat block and you will get litany of uh, so many different things. So why on earth would we need to create our own? Why, why would we do this? Uh, gentlemen, why, what have you, why are some reasons that you've found as to creating your own monsters? Well, well, for me, the obvious answer is to create a unique flavor for your campaign, for your world, the thing that you're building, it adds a uniqueness. It's, it's all your own. It's not something that someone else developed. It's not just something you pulled from a core book. Um, and honestly, it's, it's really an exciting part of world building. It's what makes, you know, just like doing continents and figuring out cities, figuring out the creatures and how they live and why they exist is part of the fun of world building and that's why i think it's something you need you need to do it because it makes it interesting for players because it's that unique flavor and to your campaign in your world um there's obvious other reasons eric you probably have a few yourself yeah i mean i i totally agree at the top of the list for me is that it's fun for me uh it's it's creative um you can really put a lot into it and it's it's really satisfying to see players react to a unique monster or something they didn't expect, right? We're all about defying expectations, of sub, uh, uh, subverting expectations, I think is a big thing too. And that's what makes story compelling is when you do that. And one of the ways you can do that in a story, in a narrative campaign is to subvert expectations as far as monsters go about, you know, introducing a new family of monsters can really shake things up. Um, and like you said, James, like I think the other big, big reason is um, people know what to expect. I mean, like you said, the bugbear, you know, I think the best example of this is the troll. Right. Yes. Trolls are one of the most well-known uh, creatures, and we all know about their regeneration. You know, we know how to uh, overcome the regeneration. I mean, most people do that are that are nerds of, of most sorts. So, uh, um, you know, it's not so much of like when when trolls were first written about, maybe they were exciting, but but now people kind of know, and it maybe leads to metagaming. It maybe leads to not it not being as exciting or as like desperate because you're like, how do we kill this thing? So I think that's another big thing too, is just uh, keeping that challenge for players and keeping the mystery, right? Because their characters, they might not know what a troll is, but the players do. So it is often also hard as a player to kind of uh, balance that. I find it too, like it's hard to often, you know, you don't want to metagame, but it's hard not to because you know those things. So it also helps the players out for sure. It's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? You, these games are loved because of often the tropes that they've that they've brought into. Yeah. You know that, that people love the idea of the many eye stalked beholder or the mimic or the the dragon that that comes down with dragon's breath. But yet, 
it makes it a tricky to role play some of that stuff if their character hasn't experienced that before yeah. and trying to overcome player knowledge with these things and trying to shake things up while still including some of these classic classic uh, creatures in games it's often a, a little bit tricky one thing i've noticed unfortunately i'm seeing this even with younger players at the moment is uh this idea of they may have the monster source book with them while they're playing uh and i'm finding that that particularly <laughs> problematic with a couple of young 12 year olds at the moment that are going that's not in the monster manual whenever i oh, play wow. uh whenever so i play they, they it at the tell moment. you they so tell you yeah. that's not in the monster manual wow, that, that is that's not in the monster manual. or okay and, and, <laughs> and even worse i'm finding that when i am presenting a classic monster they're they're literally ticking off the hit points going he's got more hit points than the book um and so i'm finding wow. the need to create and redesign and reskin creatures a lot at the moment just to exert my dominance as the game master on those those yeah this is not a pokey Um, deck the monster manual is not a pokey deck for you to know every monster you know catch them all i think the monster manual looking has always been a thing as far as tabletop games been around but but i think the the new thing here is that they tell you that it's not in the that that's not what's in the monster manual that's totally new to me i've never seen that before so that's a unique thing i think (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think they they perhaps lack some of the social nuances, some of the other more sly players that you might get into. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I've uh, you know I, I present monsters as best I can, and I presented a Bulgara yesterday and was being particularly spooky about this monkey-like demon with a gaping maw and lots of ichor that's spewing out as it roars to you. And one of the players went, "That's right, he's only got eighty-four hit points. We could take him." I'm like, "But but what?" <laughs> so creating and reskinning my own monsters is becoming almost a part-time job at the moment to try and keep uh, keep my players on their toes. Um, moving on to uh, just touching base on Carl's point too. Part of, I really love doing this stuff. I really love creating uh, creatures and creating creatures from myths and creating creatures from imagination and creating creatures from sources that might not be readily available. I live in Australia. We have quite different legends in terms of our uh, our indigenous storytelling and um and quite different uh even irish and english legends um that from from settlers that came that came over here in the in the 18th century and so i love i love tapping into some of my country's kind of lore in order to create some unique creatures for down here that is very much well received by Australian players when I drop one of them on the table as well. They can recognise what it is that I've done. So um, I, I, I do agree it's it's a really big part of, of world building. Um, any other reasons, guys? Why, what else would fuel the, uh, anything for creating monsters? Or do you think we've covered that off pretty well? I, well, I, think, I, I think the, the bottom... other kind of thing is... Yeah, sorry. I mean, the bottom line is uh, it's the same old, same old, right? Just get tired of the same old, same old anyway. And whether you know the Monster Manual or you don't, there's there's a reason why there's an industry of people creating monsters constantly and publishing books constantly because they want something different and something interesting that uh, they don't know before. So um, go ahead, Eric. Yeah, my only thing is the the kind of last thing, which maybe isn't the biggest reason, but... Uh, similar to what you were saying, Carl, about like fitting the setting and, and the world you're building. But so, sometimes you need a monster that uh, kind of ticks off a certain type of challenge. Like if you have a certain kind of set piece you're doing or a certain type of specific challenge tied to maybe like an element or a theme, and you don't really have a monsters that work with that, that could be another reason is that you can really, you know, uh, focus in on the abilities 
maybe uh, to kind of accentuate whatever kind of challenge you're doing. Um, like if you're having people jump across chasms, right? Maybe have something that, that like lives below and kind of tries to snatch them. So you might have to create something interesting there. So it can be a really good way too to like add spice to the actual mechanics and just like specific types of challenges that are different than just a normal fight. Fantastic. One thing I've, I also is, uh, is pure and unadulterated fun when I create my own monsters. And I must admit, we've got too. a good example of when we played, uh, we played some Savage Worlds with Eric. Yeah. Um, Eric brought in some were-rat-like creatures, but were-rats who were entirely taken from the cast of Greece in terms of the T-Bird <laughs> group of were-rats. And a lot of their abilities and, and things were relating to that musical, which was very madcap and extremely silly. I'm, I'm assuming that's not from an official rule book. That's something no, you actually I just created. Completely, yeah. And, and it's, it's same with the rat uh, emperor who I came up with, which is this kind of this conglomerate, uh, you know, uh, ooze-like almost uh, a thousand rats together with tentacles and had four mouths and kind of control all of them too. So that was just, I ran, we'll talk about that more once we get into the mechanics and how that stuff yeah. works. But yeah, it was just Ultimately I just, just kind of working through it and just thought, oh, that would be a cool thing because this is a modern game. Let's let's have them be obsessed with the music, uh, the musical Greece. <laughs> yeah, why not, indeed? So uh, there's many reasons why. I think we've touched on them. The main one seems to be because it's damn cool and interesting and it's fun. So I guess we need to delve in, and this this will probably take a little while, but delving into the mechanics of how do you do this? And um, I'm conscious that we often talk of different systems, and so there'll be different mechanical systems about how you might create a monster, depending whether you're you're running a Pathfinder or a, or a, a Savage Worlds or a Call yeah. of Cthulhu or a Dungeons and Dragons. My background in this is very much in Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition, so I, I've had more experience in creating monsters for that system. But in terms of starting points, when where do you start from? When if you're trying to create a new, unique, compelling monster that isn't in the monster manual, something entirely different. What's your starting point, Carl? Where would you where would you begin this mammoth task of creating a mammoth? Well, since, since I like to bring it as part of world building and something unique to my campaign, it starts off, number one, We again, we put the stat blocks to the side. We, we don't care about those for now, is why does it exist? What What's its purpose in the first place? You know, what? What's its job, quote unquote, in the world? Why is it there? Because everything has a reason for existing. Um, I, re <laughs> I remember when I first started playing D&D, I would put different creatures, random monsters in different rooms that are right next to each other. And I wouldn't care that they have nothing to do with each other. Now <laughs> it's like it's, it's very important that it has a purpose. There's a reason why it exists. Um, and that reason then easily leads into then now you start talking about what words describe it you know if i if looking at it what are the words that describe it and that's going to be leading and the purpose leads into that you know that those physical characteristics come directly from their its purpose um and then that then form leads to function function leads to how it interacts with the environment um and so purpose and its interaction with the environment and then ultimately those the, the adventures and the people who come up against it, that all starts working together as, as kind of a whole. So it starts off, why does it exist? And that's the number one, the number one thing. And so I'll let others kind of walk through their, um, kind of their channel of thought as well. What do you Eric, think, Eric? similar example, similar starting point? Um, it, it really depends. I mean, uh, there's two different, I think when I would need a monster, it's either if I'm doing like a homebrew campaign, 
I might just make a bunch of monsters up front and do like family of monsters. I think we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but like I know that I need monsters, so I work on them then. Or if I'm like designing, you're designing an encounter, you know that you need some type of unique monster. So those are the two kind of things you need them for. But as far as inspiration, I mean, you can get inspiration uh, from even just looking at a picture and then kind of saying, oh, I really love this picture. What are its abilities? What are its things about? You start mm -hmm. kind of there. Uh, starting from, like you said, going from mythology. Those are really good places to go from. And a lot of the D&D &D mythology isn't the actual mythology. So even if you go look at like, oh, what is a troll? You know, or what is these, some of these other things, they might be different and you could still get something different. Um, and also like folklore, right? Not just mythology, kind of like, a, you know, a just normal folklore just around your town or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, th those are the main reasons. I, I think sometimes if you think of a theme, like w w with in that rat example, I know I needed uh, a gang that was a big thing, a gang that you guys could like talk to at some point, And it kind of just snowballed from there. And then thinking, okay, well, I know this is a funny game. Like, how can I have a little twist on it? And and that, you know, and then just thinking about, like, well, what could they be obsessed with? And that kind of just got the ball rolling into that way. So I think there's a lot of different ways that you can draw from. Also, just movies, right? Like, watching a certain movie. Oh, that was a cool thing in that movie. I'm going to take that out and do what I want with it. So um, mm -hmm. I think you can draw a lot from the media that's already out there if you need inspiration. Um, or just take inspiration from what whatever, also what's written. I think we'll talk about that later, too. And I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of lot of inspiration um, in media, but the the only concern I have is a lot of that media inspiration still lives with the tropes, um, and so you're you're bringing things that people will will recognize uh, as they see it. Um, but yeah, I I, I, I guess I mean more of a starting point. Yeah, it's a place to start. More of a starting point if you need some type of idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. I yes. think I, I come I come to it from a mix of places similar to you guys. I, I I do start with the ecology and setting and try and figure out where are my players at, what's likely to live there, what niche does this creature fill in the environment that it lives in. But equally important, I I look at what is the encounter that I need to provide, or what is the what is the niche that they that these creatures will inhabit within my story. Um, for example, I uh, we were doing a Feywild game, and we've talked about a Feywild game a lot. I was looking for a group of creatures that were going to be allies, but not powerful allies. So allies that um, are worth protecting and worth saving. Allies that might flex a little bit, but aren't exactly, you know, they're not going to save the PCs. They'll fight alongside, but not be great. And so created a, a race of hedgehog folk that, as, as monsters that just kind of would fill this niche in the ecology of the game in some ways, in a similar vein, creating shadow creatures that will inhabit a shadow realm. Um, so looking at the, not, not just the ecology of the world I'm creating, but the ecology of the game that I'm creating, the, the narrative of, and what does that narrative need in, so that I can create monsters that fill, uh, fill that gap, NPC races and monsters that can fill those, those niches within the game. That's a lot of the starting point for me. And then, of course, trying to make them as fun and interesting and unique as possible so that they are marked different. They are they're significantly different to what you would find in a book. Well, that, yeah, I think they go hand in hand. I mean, those are obviously two sides of the same coin. Um, and and I, I definitely see where you're coming from, and that's, that plays into my thinking. I guess I didn't express it uh, in that way for sure. Um, like, for example, in my um, post-apocalyptic world where people are growing 
civilization is growing back again, um, I had a bunch of goo monsters, which were basically creatures that were made up of stuff left over from gray goo, you know, that the nano machines would create gay goo and that would end up creating monsters. But that was all about, there's something that has a purpose in there. But just like you yeah. said, there's an ecology of the kinds of uh, encounters that then they would have, right? How do they interact with this environment? Um, so why do they exist? How do they act in the environment? And then I think I did have to tailor them because ultimately people, it's not just an exercise in thought process, right? Ultimately players have to go against them. And so they need to have, yes. you know, they, they can't be a goo bunny rabbit just because, you know, th that would be the most likely thing in the scenario is a goo. Well, no, it has to have big pointy teeth, right? There has to be a reason for it to interact with the players. So good point that you make a great point there. And, and I'm, and I'm sucking in all these points because with this science fiction game, with going to different planets, creating <laughs> Just monsters. Just beginning it now. Yeah, yeah creating <laughs> monsters and creating creatures are going to be, you know, bread and butter, it's right? And you, yeah, yeah, it's going to be a big part of it. So and it's like making a unique planet for a unique planet. You want to have like different yeah. types of, yeah. So, they, so I do this yeah. podcast so I can learn, you know, basically. I think that's what I do. It. It's <laughs> yeah. like I learn stuff, so. This is a great um, echo, not an echo chamber. What do you call it? A sounding bowl, sounding board where we can bounce all ideas off each other. Think tank. Yeah. There we go. Exactly right. Um, so once we've come to these first principles and we've thought about our first concepts and where these creatures might fit in the world and we've been inspired by where it is, the big challenge I find um, when you're creating monsters in particular is encounter balance, trying to, you know, these free-throwing ideas where... Let's let's okay. I need hedgehogs, so they're going to roll into a defensive ball at some point, and then pull out spines, or is that and hurl them at creatures? And uh, they might have extra armor, and uh, I want them to be ferocious little guys with spears, and I need them to explode in a puff of uh, a puff of quills at, at once per five rounds, or something like that. The playtesting and the balancing of these uh, of these things is often the big challenge. Any yeah. tips or pointers? And sorry, guys, this, I didn't put this on our notes. It just dawned on me that this is probably well, that's, that's a big a part question. of what we're talking I, about I, today. I, I, I Savage World is not as a yeah. Savage yes. Worlds is is a much more open to to make creatures. Uh, you know, with C, with CR, it's it's a little bit more difficult. But the best way for as far as balance goes is, I mean, we might we're going to talk about later about reskinning monsters. But in this case, you can reskin abilities. So if there's already an ability of a similar level that you're looking for, that's maybe like a fire explosion, there's nothing saying that you can't take whatever that is, reskin it as a spine explosion in your example, and you know that it's mechanically, numbers-wise, it's roughly balanced for whatever CR that you need it, but you've now reskinned it. And so it's going to feel different to the players. Maybe it's a different damage type, piercing versus fire, whatever. But as far as like the numbers go and what the expected character levels are, uh, you already have that down. So I think to me, that's that's the number one thing is just to look at like what have the game designers done, you know, and get an idea from that because they're the ones that are paid and have put all the money into actually figuring out balance. Um, and th that's where I think for CR, Savage Worlds, I mean, Carl, you probably have a lot more to say on that. It's it's a much more open one. So it's, it, we can talk about the narrative, more narrative games. That's a different. Yeah, game. I play a lot. I play basically Savage Worlds. And the one thing that comes in with Savage Worlds that I preach is Balance doesn't matter. You're never going to have balance. So, so I don't spend a lot of time worrying about balance. Um, but I, 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 there's some though. There is there, some. Well, I mean, I mean you obviously yeah. have to think about it a little bit. But you know, so I'm being a bit tongue in cheek. But the reality is, there's no CR and and trying to get things where, you know, X number of players of a certain level can go against a CR level creature of this type, and so you have to go through and 
uh, and I, you know, I looked at the the monster manual or the um, Dungeons Master Guide, the creature creation, and it's like that's yes. that's like a word puzzle, math puzzle to try to get everything <laughs> put together, and and that's just I'm much more, and it kind of comes back to a little bit of what you were saying, Eric. You know, reskinning. I'm much more just say the creature needs to do a thing, and that thing needs to do about this much damage. So okay, done, and then call it what it is and move on with my life. And because, uh, you know, you're not going to get it perfect ever uh, because you can't play test it. Uh, James, you might be able to, cause you run these games very often. So you might mm. be able to, you know, tweak things as you go along. But uh, generally that one use in the campaign, uh, unless you're going to use it over and over again, it's tough to even get the chance to play test it. I do tend to play test things. And I guess to move on from that, I, I will do uh, dummy encounters. What I look at is a, is a five-round um, uh, combat simulation, I guess, where I'll look at my. Thankfully, I've got a VTT that I can do this pretty easily with. I can, you know, just double-click a couple of buttons, and it will show me how much damage and, and armor class type and bits and pieces. So I'll often play five rounds of my big bads against a dummy group and see how much damage it can outlay, and see if that's going to be problematic. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess. I guess I agree that the the reskinning is is probably the the key for me in in trying to get these the mechanics of this right. Um, there's a a great um, dungeon master and YouTuber and podcaster, a guy called Sly Flourish. I've talked a lot about his lazy dungeon master guides before. Um, he does a lot of reskinning in terms of getting his uh, his damage right and his monsters right, and often he'll just change the damage type. From a from a creature, so uh, you want oh, yeah. a centaur, we want an undead centaur. Well, the centaur is now doing necrotic instead of piercing damage, and and so he'll literally take a whole a whole uh, um, creature and then do a very quick reskin um, to get that going. And that way, you already know, as Eric said, you already know that the balance is kind of there because the playtesting is already being done around it. That, that's well, I, I would say certain. my advice was more for like just looking at a specific ability that that's similar. I think that is a good, maybe it's a good time to now to talk about like, uh, you know, for me, there's like three levels of monster creation. There is the, the simplest one, which I think we, we brought up now a, a little bit is, you know, you have a troll, you change its picture and then you, then you tweak maybe a tiny bit of things. So like in the troll example, it could have a metallic body and it's resistant to, and it's like a lumbering, it doesn't look like a troll, right? It's like a, it's more of a, um, like an ape, like a, like a metallic ape. And it has a, it has a vulnerability to electricity, say. Right, just those two things, and you've changed the picture. That'll make people not know what it is. And then the second way I think is that you can take two monsters and then mash, just kind of mash them together, which I've done yep. before, where you just kind of take half of those abilities, half of those abilities, um, and then you have the full making, which you can still reskin stuff, right? Like I said, if if, if you need that pine explosion, uh, uh, explosion of quills, then you can just look at like what a fireball would be or something for a similar CR creature, but um. I think often if you need just a monster for a quick encounter, that then first look at just reskinning, because that's if you're kind of stressed about it and you really need a new monster, a monster to put in, but you're worried that they already know what it is. Just put a new picture on it, change a couple of things. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of the the basic ways of reskinning and doing this. And a lot of this is the easy stuff out of the box. Yeah. Um, and perhaps this leads us on very well, is this quick ways of how do we take existing monsters, how do we move them around, how do we make them a little bit different? And I guess for me, I was thinking more of my 
uh, my problem that I'm dealing with at the moment, where I have younger players, but even older players, that understand the Monster Manual really, really easily. They've, they've, they've played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons now. They, they know the tropes. And how do you, how do you kind of mix this up a little bit? One of the techniques I've found, and I, I, I got this a lot from, um, is a series of, of books for Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition from a publisher named Dragonics. And they do a number of, they call them the Monster Manuals Expanded. And I guess this is a, a third-party publisher that has been that has codified what I've been doing for quite a while. And that is what I try and do is create subclasses of monster as well, just to try and yeah. shake things up a little bit. I'm running uh, the the um, the campaign Storm King's Thunder at the moment, which is a lot of giant encounters, and you end up fighting the same giant over and over and over and over and over again. And so one of the things that I've looked at doing very very much is creating subclasses of giants and so you have a fire giant but you have the fire giant thug or the fire giant um, slag thrower or the fire giant artificer or the fire giant dreadnought or the fire giant uh, you know fire belcher or you just kind of keep making up these little subclasses where you'll take the base class the base stat block of of a monster and then just add an extra ability or two on the top of them so it doesn't radically overbalance it but will also keep your players surprised at well, hang on a minute that's not what fire giants normally do they don't certainly breathe fire on me that's new and kind of adding abilities adding things adding these subclasses to existing monsters also allows me to shake it up as well um any any other kind of easy reskin thoughts carl do you well, do I this much um, well, I do it a lot. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of steal and reskin and then make tweaks and borrow from other things and, um, you know, add, add my own abilities. One of the things that I think ties into what Eric was saying earlier when he talked about, you know, troll might have a different body or whatever, you actually can just completely turn around and, and the way things work. And so, yeah, it looks like a troll. It is a troll. Everything's a troll. But guess what? It's not affected by fire. And that will yeah. it just completely changes what how the players interact with it and they say this world is different even though you're using the tried you know the old old school tropes you know they're running into these things um you know maybe a mimic doesn't work the way a mimic always does in normal D&D it works differently so um yes that's that's a great way of just like but you got to stay on top of that if your world is like that then make your world like that make it so that the the tropes aren't the same um, everywhere you go. So that's an easy one. It just It is the same, but there's a couple of things that are just completely different and you don't expect them at all. Yeah, that's when I was talking before about defying expectations, uh, subverting expectations, that's definitely one of the ways like to just really mix it up for people. And I think even with creating your own monsters, like there's also just tropes about like, you know, what a monster looks like and what it does. So you see a big monster, you might think, oh, it's just a strong brute. But maybe it, you know, is psionic and is actually quite mm. weak physically. It's just it's just large. Maybe it's just full of it's full of liquid or something, but it's psionic. Right. And that's a really good way to like uh, the the players are thinking it's going to be this kind of encounter. And then it kind of switches switches on them. And that really like makes them. Oh, crap. Like I got to We got to really pay attention here. Um, uh, yeah. And I, I don't know if we're going to talk. I, I also want to talk about the, like you brought up, James, is the, the kind of subclasses. Um, I love doing this, and I love doing this with even original monsters too. Well, I'll yes. often create in the front. I'll create like a family of monsters, and I think that's a really good way to when you're creating monsters to kind of get the most juice 
out of the lemons, you know, that kind of get the most out of it you can with your original idea. And, and very basically, I see it as you have your base monster, you have your mook monster. This is your kind of run-of-the-mill version, right? Your normal goblin. And then there, you have an elite version and you have like a special version. And then a boss can be from one of those. And just so, But, but basically, those, just having those three is enough um, diversity to make monsters. Now, you can add more and more, of course. But I think just having those three... Um, and like you said, you have your basic one that has its theme. Uh, your elite one is just going to generally be like a stronger version of your base one. Um, maybe even with some better weapons, maybe a couple of other, other abilities. Your special one could be anything from like the magic wielder of that thing or yes. could have like a really unique effect. Like um, for the remember, I was talking to you about making kind of these dogs for the um, the Empire in our, our, our Feywilds game. I had this idea for these, alchem my, my character just blurted out that there was alchemical dog war machines um, you know, made from like, you know, al alchemy. And I was like thinking about how could we do that? And my main thought was like, well, there's this one dog that it, it has poison breath and it has a giant cannon on its back. And there were some mechanics like where it can't move and shoot in the same turn um, and it's resistant to poison. And then there was like an elite version of that that I was thinking that was a higher CR that had even like a bigger blast and uh, different abilities. And then there was a special version that was also a dog and had poison stuff, but could teleport and, um, you know, do some other stuff. It was more psionic. So it was kind of a twist on that. So I think just those three things really makes it seem like there's kind of a robust, uh, uh, you know, family here. Uh, this is something that I did with my Fallout game where I made like, you know, I was, I was writing Fallout into Savage Worlds, but I had my ghoul, I had my like lurker ghoul, I had my... Um, glowing one ghoul right same thing with like i had just all the type of monsters i had the like they do in the video game the different versions just to, just to make it feel like wow this isn't just a one thing there is like a, a, you know a genus here there is a species here and there's they have different niches but they're still kind of the same vibe so sorry this is the, uh, the alien movie <laughs> series at large yeah, yeah, it, yeah exactly yeah. and okay. and the revealing of those different abilities means that you certainly get more mileage out of your monsters yeah you know run the first few few encounters with your base monster build and then suddenly you you have something a little bit different that joins the fray, or and, and so effectively you're subverting the expectation that you've actually set the group yeah, as well. You've said exactly. here it is, but oh no, now there's something a little bit different. Oh, and now there's something entirely complicated. And what I love doing is what happens when all three of those things are fighting together, and you're allowing a, a different tactical element about how those three builds would would operate together how would who would go in first and who would hang back and how would uh, and i for example i love playing creating shaman like characters that might do a bless or a bane or a, they're effectively buffing um yeah. the base troops so that suddenly that becomes a whole different complication something that's very very different in in terms of the encounter and it's interesting if these creatures don't have a significant difference between them um, in look and style, you know, so, yeah. um, Dragonlance, uh, did a lot of this, right? You had the Draconians mm. and they mostly looked yes. the same and the players were, or the players, the, um, characters in the book were surprised when this one happened to blow up on them after they killed it versus this other one did something else. So I, I feel that that's a great surprise to the players. And I think you might've been alluding to that when you were talking about, um, these subclasses, right? That, it look, looks like a fire giant. Sure, it must be a fire giant, but this one breathes fire. That's not... But this other one didn't breathe fire, and it looked exactly the same, or mostly the same. It, it, yes. You know, so I got to think about that um, tactically as a player, you know, because any one of these things could be a shaman, and you don't know. I mean, unless... 
you know, I, I think we the, the fantasy tropes is the wizards are running around in robes and the fighters are running around in armor, but that doesn't have to be true for your monsters, right? Um, by any yeah, yeah, any exactly right. Yep. I think that goes completely back to subverting expectations. And like you said, James, even to your own expectations that you set up. And that's what I think we're really going for is we want to keep players on their toes. And we want them to be engaged so much that in character, they're asking those kind of questions. Do I think this person's a magic user? Oh, have I heard of this monster before? Like, let's do those intelligent checks in combat, make them worthwhile. That's the one thing that I really love about Pathfinder 2E is that they've completely built in completely uh, doing recall knowledge checks on monsters. And they and they built in bonuses too. Um, and I think we'll talk about this maybe at the end about players, but um, you want players to, to do those things. And, and if, you know, and if you find they're not, you know, making it so they can, they can never know what to expect, right? Like if you see them getting kind of lax with it, like, yeah, throw in your monster that explodes all of a sudden. So they're like, wait a minute, I didn't know they could do that. So then they will be asking, they will be engaged. They will want to find those things out. Um, yeah. Absolutely, and uh, it's interesting to note that D&D 1 has absolutely ripped that off. The old uh, recall within combat uh, checks is certainly becoming a big part of the new playtest for Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, one last point that I make in terms of way I, the ways I shake up existing monsters is I'll often play around with the RP, the role-playing element of them, a little bit. So instead of the dull, lumbering troll, make a fast, erudite with a high vocabulary conversationalist troll. I, I'll often muck around with just the way that creatures speak and the way that creatures move and their tactical um, nouns as, as well. So um, often just having a bit of a think about what is a more intelligent zombie look like will change things dramatically or what is a less intelligent wizard look like um, or, or so and so you know just mucking around with that mental and social abilities of yeah. a creature can also change the the way that a, that an encounter looks uh, very much um so these are quick ways of, of shaking up existing monsters any other points you'd like to make gentlemen is that I think about creating monsters well. or are we going to talk more about that or uh creating reskinning Putting, uh, one other, putting monsters together before another we move tip on to I would fights? say uh, yeah another tip I would say for creating monsters and to keep it diverse especially with your like base versions you can often give them different gear like if you're just making one stat block you can give them different gear like say you, you give them a sword and a bow right and I think you see this a lot and that's just the basic example and then you have when you actually bring them to the table if you're on VTT or whatever um, especially easier if you're on a VTT you can have your archers and your melee ones and you don't have to make separate ones. You know what I'm saying? Like, and you can give one, you can give them nets, but only one or two of them actually use the nets. So I, I think it's an easy thing, especially for the base ones, to give them maybe a bunch of stuff, but you don't always have to use them all. And that's just an easy way to, again, get some more diversity out of your creatures without actually making all these separate sheets and, and tracking all these separate sheets. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I, like we said, subverting expectations. I mean, uh, you can take something like a Yeti. Right? We all know what a Yeti is, and, and people are starting to use those in games, but it's a myth that's maybe not as well represented. But then you say, okay, I'm going to put a Yeti in a desert. You know, yes. what, what does that look like? So, so it has like, you know, maybe no hair or has long black hair or something. And then you're like, well, what's something? To, let me put a little twist on this. Uh, sand. And then you could think like maybe it has, uh, maybe it throws up quicksand on people, you know, just to like really kind of change, like, and that was just a quick, you know, I just thought of a Yeti in a desert and I already got this like weird ability that came out of that. So uh, again, really, really, you know, taking a monster that's somewhere and putting it somewhere else that, that it's not normally like that's in our mythos is another good way to like start coming up with unique ideas. You know what I mean? So 
that's my final thoughts. A- absolutely. The the other thing I look at, and if we take the, um, I guess the second part rather than looking at an ecology, but looking at what an encounter requires as well, yeah. grabbing grabbing those big abilities that you may only need to fire off once or twice in a combat just to get that impact of what you need. Um, you know, a, a creature that can create a whirlwind that will do something dramatic within the within the the uh, the combat um, uh, landscape or, or things like that. If you start from those points and and building those uh, heavily into the encounter is something I look at as well. Carl, any last points on creating monsters and creating and quick reskins or quick tips before we move on to epic bosses? I feel like uh, we nailed that pretty well. <laughs> Honestly, I can't. I don't know if I can add any more awesomeness than it was already there so <laughs> awesome well we can we can add awesomeness and that is our epic boss battle I, I think it would be remiss of us to talk through compelling monsters if we didn't look at boss encounters which really are some of the most memorable sessions i think you will ever have in role-playing games is those final bosses or those mini bosses that you that you end up putting there within a role-playing session. It might be the culmination of uh, three months, six months, a year, many years of a campaign where you finally meet the great big bad of your session. And uh, and and making those things compelling, and I actually find the challenge is making those things last long enough before the players kill them. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's about how do you create those epic final encounters? And this is probably a whole episode on its own, but... We're going to try and give you some some quick hints about how you might create some epic, compelling big bosses. Who'd like to start with this one? Well, James, why don't you start with this one? I mean, this is a very passionate subject for you, so. Yeah, sure. lead the way. Lead I'll the way. introduce myself. <laughs> yeah. All right, James, what do you think? <laughs> well, actually, James, I think that it, and, and look, it is a huge part of role-playing games, and, and I'm very passionate about it. I will. I think I think longer and harder about big boss fights than I do about any other any other encounter. Because often my, my big boss fights will take almost a whole session. I run small two-hour sessions for a lot of my games, so often boss fights take multiple sessions where we pick up uh, in the middle of a, of a session and, and move on and, uh, and and complete it. And I look at a multi-staged approach to these things where um, I actually have three quite specific stages of when I put together a boss fight. And a lot of it's involved around allowing the role-playing element to happen during the encounter. I think it's really important that bosses get a chance to monologue and get an, a chance to role-play while the fight is in play. Because um, if all we're doing is rolling dice and we lose the RP element of, of this in the most epic of, of, uh, of sessions, then I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. So I try and structure these boss fights with phases that allow me to uh, interrupt the fight with good role play as we go along. Um, I'll briefly go through my three stages and then perhaps we can have a bit of a chat about how you might start it. But my three stages go something a little bit like this. My first stage is about feeling out the players and feeling out the, the, the boss and setting up the terrain, setting up the, the, the environment where we will be fighting. Often players will want to just throw the biggest, toughest thing that they want heavily into the fight to try and do the most damage they possibly can. So when I'm building a boss fight, I want to make sure that my boss can uh, 
can survive those opening salvos of very powerful magics while I set up what will be the environment for the game and for this fight. Uh, we ran a hag battle a couple of years ago, Eric, when uh, when yeah. really the hag, all the hag did was for the first few rounds of combat was slowly flood this cavern with water so that I could then use some water abilities later in the fight. And in order for her to survive it, I had her cocooned in this uh, this kind of uh, dome of bracken that the group had to battle their way and destroy before they could even get to her, which allowed me to set up the terrain and by buying myself enough time that the players could still do damage and could still do what they needed to do. And that's my step one, setting up the actual fighting space, whether you've got to flood something, whether the volcano goes off, whether there's quicksand, whether there's wind that picks up, whatever you need to do so that the the terrain and the, the space of where the boss fight happens is epic and it's and it's different because then you can use that terrain as part of as part of what you need to do. Stage two for me is what I call the curve. Well, I'll add additional minions or monsters that come to aid the boss so that there so that there has to be a split of resources between the players. Or there's additional attacks that come where come from somewhere, whether the flood suddenly has water spouts that will mean that you're not just doing one turn for the boss, you're doing multiple turns so that different things are happening on the battlefield. And then stage three is what I call the frenzy, where for, for a reason or another, there is a time-sensitive element to the fight. And often that's the player's hit points, but uh, where people feel the, the, the urgency of having to to quickly resolve this and often they'll have to come up with that decision not to deal with the other creatures because we want to kill the boss quickly or or we have to uh, quickly escape from this room before the whole room floods so we've got to kill the boss quickly so that there's you don't ever end up in that situation where it's just slogging out a fight round after round after round there needs to be some kind of level of urgency to it so they're my three steps of when I create a boss fight uh, a setup a curve and a frenzy, which is just names I've plucked out of my hat. Um, but that's kind of the thinking that I do whenever I create a boss fight. Guys, have what in, any similar steps or any thoughts when you're first putting a, a fight together in your mind for these legendary epic last battles? Well, the, the first thing is that's brilliant. I just want to say I, I love that. I love what you what you've got there. Um, I'll add some things that are probably more tactical in nature in the sense of it goes back to have layered encounters, have layers of encounters. So um, where it's not just your big bad guy the minute you step through the door. And I think you alluded to that a little bit with, um, you know, having the minions come in um, that protect them. So or you have to go through something before you can get there and you, you can feel the tension is coming even though I have to get past this lieutenant, I know just on the other side of that door is what I want to what I want to be. Um, the second one I think sometimes we lose sight of, and I do myself, is is you know the big bad guy. He's not going to expose themselves for no reason, right? And, and Savage Worlds again, the game I play a lot. You can one shot somebody pretty easily. You get the right roll, you get the right explosion, and before you know it, uh, that that counter that you went so was so important to set up. The, the, they're just dead in a second. And and that's fine. I mean, that's exciting in and of itself that, you know, you get excited to be able to do that. But they shouldn't expose themselves. They should put themselves in a position where they're protected. Um, they're using all the rules. The bad guys can use all the rules the PCs can. Um, I, I think lots of times uh, 
you pull your punches a little bit as a game master and you don't use all the capability you have, like, I don't know, in D&D, under that counterspell thing that everybody loves to bag on. But um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, in Savage Worlds, it's the same thing. It's so often you can easily forget to use cover or your defensive actions or, you know, do tests and support roles and all those sorts of things that a bad guy can can do. And then, and then the final thing I'll throw out there is this is their home. So there should be choke points. There should be ways of separating the party so that they can't come in full strength. Um, you can leverage traps that only you know how to get past um, or your minions know how to get past or they're set up. Um, and not traps in the uh, dungeon sense where they just kind of are there, but they're there for a very intentional purpose to um, put the players in a, in a situation where the bad guy can can do some heavy damage. It's not just purely a way of slowing the players down. It's a tactical advantage, but um, that's just some things right off the top of my head. Again, much more tactically as opposed to sort of the the, the overall kind of metaphysical <laughs> way that you talked about um, pulling together a big bad um, fight. So those are some of the ideas that right off the top of my head I think are kind of important um, when you're building out that uh, that combat situation. Uh, yeah, I, to I completely agree with you guys. Like, I couldn't agree more um, as far as creating uh, interesting boss battles, especially utilizing the environment is so big, um, uh, utilizing minions or some type of other uh, obstacles. But I do want to bring this back a little bit to as far as designing monsters go and actually designing a boss, right? Um, and I think an important thing about uh, having your designed boss and to be interesting, a lot of that is buildup, which I think we've talked about. But build up as far as either if you have created a family of monsters, right? You have those people fighting those monsters uh, through the narrative. And so yep. they, they, they have an idea for the theme. But then, you know, again, we'll t when you actually reveal the monster, you want it to be bigger and weirder than, than what they've seen so far. So like in my, in our, just go back to the rat example, right? Like I had, which wasn't, it was a one shot. So I had to condense everything. But, uh, you know, going with like an interesting, I was like, okay, rats don't usually have tentacles. But I was like, but they have tails. And then so if there was a bunch of them that combined, it could turn into a tentacle. So again, you could kind of combine the traits of monsters you've been building and, and make something unique. And that's a really good way. But, but again, it's the buildup. So you want to have people build up to that. And if it's not something that has the family of monsters, you still build up whatever their theme is. You still build it up as far as like environmental things. Or if, you know, if there's some type of vegetable, uh, fungus related monster, then you have like spore creatures or whatever that you're fighting before. So they're not actually mushroom creatures, but they're somehow related. Or, or you have evidence of whatever they are has gone through, like, uh, you know, things that have been kind of acidically digested externally or whatever. So taking, you know, create your boss monster and then take things from that that you can plug in to the lead up. I think it's a really good way to get people excited for whatever unique thing that you've created. Um, and then, yeah, going back into the boss battle, I absolutely agree with your stages. Those things are definitely try to do. And I think like, you know, that can they call them um, legendary actions and lair actions, especially yeah. lair actions in D&D. Oh, yeah. It's super um, uh, good to use. Like always want the environment to be a, the other character um, if you're fighting a boss in its lair. Um, and also having things that might... Um, you know, like in, in that same battle, just go back to that rat battle, uh, Carl had jumped on this right away and I didn't want it to be too obtuse. So I kind of like was being 
pretty uh, overt about it. But the, the rat was regenerating from get, having access to rats coming in through a tunnel. So he hacked the computers and closed the tunnel off to stop it regenerating. Mm. And it was it, it was more armored because of its the, it was sitting in water. And it was like absorbing water and using that as like a shield almost. And so he shut down the water from that. So I really had like some of the abilities of this unique monster were tied to the environment. And when you interacted with the abilities, almost like a puzzle. And again, the, the characters had to be smart. They didn't just go and attack. So that's another way of <laughs> utilizing the unique abilities, but having a way to like <laughs> shut off those abilities based on the environment is another really good way to kind of utilize the unique monster things. Um, I, I want to do a, a quick little name drop on, if I can, at this point. There, there's a fantastic source book that I use when I'm putting together my monster lairs. And there's a writer, he's a French guy that thinks a lot about monster design named Trekiros. T-R-E-K-I-R-O-S. He's put out a fantastic book for Dungeons and Dragons, but honestly, I think you could use it for any system called Home Field Advantage, which talks entirely <laughs> about monsters using lairs and how lairs can be customized to different monsters. And he's actually taken the whole of the monster manual and then created the home bases for all of these monsters, oh, cool. um, yeah. which include lair actions so that the actual place responds to the fight. So I'll often skim that book for ideas before I'm putting together a boss fight as well. So very important for when you're putting those little uh, landscapes in. Um, guys, I've got a, a, a specific question I'd, I'd like to talk through, and um, and that is about action economy. Action economy is a, is a really yes. tricky one when you're putting together a boss encounter. And I know we're talking about com compelling monsters, but half the challenge I find is the survivability of these bosses. Um, if you've got a group of five or six players, all of which are having their turns that are generally optimized because people in boss fights hold their best spells and their best abilities and they'll often unleash them all at the same time. How do you work through survivability of your bad guy so that there's enough time for you to do what you need to do in terms of these encounters? Well, I mean, I think you brought it up already pretty well. I mean, utilizing the environment is the first thing. And I mean, just having physical space between the monster, like they enter the map, right? But the monster's at the other end of this chasm and there's, you know, things but they have to get through maybe to get to the monster. Um, also, like you said, utilizing minions. I mean, that, that's I think that's the biggest trap because I think we're more talking about 5e here. Not everything has the same action economy issue that like yep. D&D and Pathfinder does. Um, but utilizing minions is huge. Um, and, and a really good thing that you had brought up too is about having minions in reserve is a really good way that if the players are doing too well, like, so you might not even think you need to bring them in, but if the players are doing too well, that's when you have already written, how do these other things come in? So that's kind of like your backup. That's your safety net is having other players. And then the third thing I would say is what I was kind of talking about before is have the monster have almost not quite invulnerability, but have extremely powerful abilities that almost can't be overcome unless the the, the, the characters, uh, the players have a time to stop and think, okay, what's in the environment that can actually deactivate it? So almost yes. like in Star Wars, the, you know, the shield on Hoth or whatever. But like I said, for, for my like rat tyrant, it was, I didn't want you guys to kill him too quickly. So I had this regeneration. I had this extra armor that you actually had to like do something. And then while that was happening, you were fighting the minions. So I think having things that switch off that are protecting it you know, almost like narrative armor in, in a way is 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 a really good way to do that and is fine and it makes a more exciting uh, uh, encounter anyways. So those are the couple things I would say. Uh, so so I think the, I mentioned, uh, you know, lieutenants, um, I think you got there, you know, folks who are tough in and of themselves and are not just mooks, 
that the players can easily cut through, they will pull. They have to pull attention because they're the immediate problem that they have to solve. Mm. Um, <clears throat> that allows the big, the 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 kind of the bad guy to stay protected. And, and you can do it like Eric mentions, where the environment itself you have to defeat. Or they simply, uh, how many times have we seen in, in films and movies, right, where it's like <laughs> yeah. the, the, the lieutenants <laughs> go attack them and then they start walking out the back door heading towards your ship. And so yeah. you have to wade through these things um, that have uh, a lot more in their action economy because there's a lot more of them to, to, to get to the, big, the bad guy initially. He's not just standing there using his one or two abilities. And and I play a lot more modern games, so I I think it's probably more appropriate to modern games because definitely a monster in a D and D could have some big, huge weapon that does a ton of damage at the same time and kind of makes up for the fact that it only has one or two attacks and a reaction and all that sort of well, thing. That, but, that's that's the issue I think James is that action economy actually will kill those big strong monsters in D and D. Yeah, ex- exactly. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> And not just D&D. <clears throat> I find it in Call of Cthulhu as well. You've got, uh, ultimately, if a monster's only got one or two actions, that's only one or two turns, while the others can do a lot more. Gentlemen, I'm conscious of time, and as per usual, we always like to end up with a tip about players and what players can do. And I think this one's been a particularly specific Games Master session. But as a player, how can you help with this? Because ultimately, uh, we're doing this for the players, and if there are players listening... What are some tips that you would give to players about making monsters more compelling to themselves and particularly to the other players around them? Any any last-minute tips for our players? Where can we go with this? I don't know if it's a tip, but give the GM some slack. Um, don't don't try to have encyclopedic knowledge of of every possible thing. Try to avoid metagaming um, and, and engage. Uh, James, you talked about that first part is the monologue of the, uh, the foe. Uh, you know, before the battles happen, they're, they're role playing. Get all hog, jump in, role play that out. Go ahead and, and play with that. Um, but just remember, it's a game. It's supposed to be fun. Um, if you know everything there is to know, then is it really as fun as it could be? Uh, you know, so just just recognize that you, you don't have you, uh, knowing everything is not winning. So, you know, cut the GM some slack and, and just, you don't need to know everything anyway. So I think I'm beating that dead horse, but uh, yeah, why not monologue an RP? There's a t-shirt. There's a t-shirt. Knowing everything is not winning. I'm going to print it. <laughs> I'm going to put it. I'm going to wear it very proudly for my 12-year-olds. Eric, what do you think? Yeah, I, I have a couple <clears throat> thoughts on this and, and a little bit also for GM advice here too, for specifically for players. But I mean, for one, you know, be here, have your... Be, cur- be curious, be immersive. And, and part, I, I do want to touch on metagaming because I think this is one of the areas where metagaming is bound to happen if, if they're not unique monsters, right? If we're talking about a troll, um, I think what's okay here is to accept that, that it, it, it happens, but then you can still be conscious of having your character ask or asking the GM, would my character know this? Is this a common monster that they know? And even though the player, I know it. I think it's perfectly okay for you to ask these type of questions to your GM. So be communicative with your GM and say, hey, would I know about the Trolls Regeneration? Oh, no, you wouldn't. Okay, uh, can I make this a check? Because, you know, we're not like superhuman here as far as like shutting off parts of our brain to forget that we know about the Regeneration, right? It's always yep. there. So I think if that is the case, don't feel bad that you know. Just make sure that you do the things in-game 
and, and talk to the GM and, and make sure you, you ask those questions. And for the GM, I think if you have players who are asking questions, reward them. Even if they know what a creature's abilities are and, and they're taking the time in combat to say, uh, I want to do an, a, like, I want to do a knowledge check about this creature and, and they, they succeed. Like, you know, you can say, oh yeah, you know about the regeneration or whatever, but you could also give them just like a one time, you know, plus one on their next attack roll or something. Like you can give them a little kind of bonus for having this, uh, it, you know, their character having knowledge about a creature. So I think it's, it's, it's important to kind of reward that because that will make the, the, the players do that more. You know what I mean? And, and then, if, then if you are introducing new creatures, they're not caught totally off guard because they're already asking these questions about, like, can I do that recall knowledge check? You know, reward them for instead of attacking, they spent the action to do that. Um, I think that's the kind of biggest things I would say as far as from a player's side, for sure. Um, and also, like, you know, yeah, you guys said, give the GM a break. Like, if they wrote a monologue, you don't always have to just, like, oh, my character would immediately cut them off and throw an axe at it. Yeah. Like, they wrote the monologue. Let, let them do the monologue. You know, like let them have that monologue. And this is especially important, I think, for if you're a player with an inexperienced GM, because you don't want to. I, I've seen this a bunch of times where uh, newer GMs will get, um, they'll get almost like uh, dissuaded, you know, because players don't take at all any time at all to kind of like uh, buy into what they're selling. I guess is is what I would say. So um, you know, let them let the GMs have their little fun. Let them do their monologue and then you can come back at it like carl said so uh yeah those are the only kind of tips i would say yeah nothing better than uh player role playing with your big bad knowing that this is the last time you're gonna play your big bad yeah. it's like hopefully you know ultimately one of you are dying so and generally it's preferable if the npc does so knowing that they're buying into that's really really important i guess one last little tip and this is not for players because i don't play very often and i didn't think about this perhaps i should have is um it's about telegraphing the big bads or the monsters' abilities as well. Um, and I was just thinking about this when you were talking about players that would ask questions. If you preempt what a monster might be doing, as in the creature inhales and, and the wind brushes towards it and it rises up um, and you can get that faint smell of sulfur within the nose that might then prompt questions from the player that then allows them to understand what's about to happen so that it's not entirely a surprise in terms of when you're creating new monsters out of nowhere. I think that's important. And in fact, that happened yeah. a lot with, with the rat encounters where Carl was asking these pointed questions and then you're describing what he might see, which effectively is telegraphing what's going to happen next, which is an important little part of the encounter. Guys, I think we are, we have smashed this out and, uh, and we've taken quite a long time to do it too. Sorry, we're a little over time this week. But, but it's um, worth it. But it's well worth me. it. That's me. Back to you, Carl, I guess. <laughs> well, everyone, thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and hopefully you got something out of it. Remember, drop by MasteringTheRPG.com. That's all one word. Uh, for our projects, contact, uh, contacting us, sending us email. Uh, like I said, you can email Game Master at MasteringTheRPG.com if you have questions, you, you uh, need some additional advice, or more importantly, you have something you need adjudicated, please, Eric wants to answer <laughs> questions and, and save you from fighting amongst each other. Let us That's do right. that for you. Um, you can also see us on Twitter at MasteringTheRPG. Um, so if you uh, like what you're hearing, give us a positive review and your podcatcher pod of choice and all that good stuff. And once again, um, this is Carl with Eric and James. So say goodbye, guys. Sayonara. Goodbye, guys.